Chapter 14 Defamation A tilde A. Introduction The law of a defamation is a mess. It is an amalgam of centuries-old common law and modem constitutional doctrine. Unlike old soldiers who never die but just fade away, some of the antiquated doctrine has refused to pass from the scene. Over the last four decades, the United States Supreme Court has taken huge bites out of the common law of a defamation. Where common law doctrine was in conflict with the First Amendment right of free speech, the courts cuddled age-old defamation rules. The law of a defamation today has significant remnants of the something old, but is dominated by the something new of First Amendment jurisprudence. If you're examining both the common law and constitutional doctrine in depth, it will be helpful to get bird's eye view of the basic elements of a defamation action. To make out a prima facie case, plaintiff must establish that, 1. The defendant made a defamatory statement, 2. The defendant communicated, published, the statement to a third party, and, 3. The statement could reasonably be understood to refer to the plaintiff. At common law, defamation was a strict liability tort. Even the most innocent mistake of fact on the part of the defendant was actionable if the statement was defamatory. In the famous case of E. Hulton and Company v. Jones, 1910, A.C., Defendant Newspaper and an article about Artemis Jones being with a woman who is not his wife. Plaintiff, one Artemis Jones, sued claiming that people believe any article to be about him. The author of the article claimed that he chose a fictitious name for the article and had never heard of the plaintiff. In upholding a verdict for the plaintiff, the court held that libel was a strict liability tort. It consists in using language which others knowing the circumstances reasonably think to be defamatory of the person complaining of and injured by it. Furthermore, plaintiff did not have to establish that the defamatory statement was false. Its falsity was presumed. Truth was an affirmative defense to be proven by the defendant. And for many forms of defamation, a jury was entitled to presume damages without proof that the plaintiff had suffered actual damages. Finally, 815, 816, 14, Defamation Even if plaintiff established a prima facie case for defamation, Defendant could seek to establish that the defamation was not actionable because the defendant had a privilege to communicate even defamatory information to a third party. Some privileges were absolute. Judges and legislators, for example, while acting in their official capacity, were immune from suit for defamation. Other privileges were conditional. If one communicated defamatory information to another for the purpose of protecting one's own interests or the interests of the other party and, depending on the jurisdiction, either believed or had reasonable grounds to believe in the truth of the statement. Liability for defamation could be thwarted. As we shall see, decisions of the United States Supreme Court have rendered obsolete a good bit of the common law of a defamation. Thus, for example, defamation actions against public officials and public figures cannot be predicated on strict liability. Indeed, a plaintiff must establish that the defendant made the defamatory statement with knowledge of its falsity or in reckless disregard of the truth. Furthermore, neither the falsity of the defamation nor damages may be presumed. Plaintiff must establish both. More difficult to discern is what constitutional limitations exist for defamatory statements made by one private person about another. The cases are clear as mud. We are left to speculate regarding how much of the antiquated law of a defamation is still in place. Having thoroughly confused you, we take you first to the basics of the common law of a defamation and then to the constitutional law cases. We promise to be as clear as possible. We will identify those areas in which the common law doctrine has been radically affected by constitutional law and will set out the areas in which the law is unclear and why it is so. We disclaim responsibility for the lack of clarity brought about by the interface between vague, sometimes needlessly so, constitutional law cases and state defamation law. For a general overview of the history and development of defamation, see David A. Elder, Defamation, A Lawyer's Guide, 1993, David A. Elder, 
small town police forces, other governmental entities and a misapplication of the First Amendment to the small group defamation theory, a plea for fundamental fairness from Mayberry, 6 U. Pa. J. Against. L. 881-2004, Robert D. Sack, Sack on Defamation, Libel, Slander and Related Problems, 3D Ed. PLI 2007, Rodney A. Smala, Law of a Defamation, 1986. B. What is defamatory? Susan B. Anthony USDV. D. Rye Aus. 805 F. Sup. To D. 423, S. D. Ohio 2011 J. Timothy S. Black, District Judge. Then Congressman Stephen Drehouse filed a complaint with the Ohio Elections Commission, alleging that a pro-life advocacy group, Susan B. Anthony List, intended to run advertisements containing false or misleading statements about him. The group filed an action seeking declaratory and injunctive relief against the commission and Drehaus' counterclaim for defamation. Mr. Drehaus's counterclaim for defamation involves five allegedly defamatory statements. 1. SBA lists statement on or about August 9, 2010 that Mr. Drehaus. A. What is defamatory? 817. Voted for a health care bill that includes taxpayer-funded abortion. 2. SBA lists plan billboard. Made public on September 28, 2010, which stated. Driehaus voted for taxpayer-funded abortion. 3. SBA lists statement released on October 7, 2010. It is a fact that Steve Driehaus has voted for a bill that includes taxpayer funding of abortion. 4. SBA lists other statement of October 7, 2010 that Mr. Driehaus ordered Lamar companies not to put up the billboards until the matter was settled by the Ohio Elections Commission. And, 5. SBA lists radio ad, which started running on or about October 19, 2010, stating, Steve Driehaus voted for taxpayer funding of abortion when he cast his vote for the health care reform bill. Driehaus voted for taxpayer funding of abortion. Mr. Driehaus claims that the statements defamed him by impugning his professional reputation as a pro-life member of Congress and by falsely characterizing his performance and conduct while in office. Mr. Driehaus alleges that SBA lists statements characterizing his vote on the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, ACA, were false and were made with the intended effect of deceiving the electorate as to Mr. Driehaus's position on abortion. As a result, Mr. Driehaus maintains that he suffered reputational and other economic damage. SBA list moves for summary judgment on the counterclaim, alleging that the statements are, 1, protected opinion, 2, not capable of defamatory meaning, and, 3, not false or made with actual malice. 3. Analysis. B. Capable of defamatory meaning. First, SBA list claims that the taxpayer-funded abortion statements are not capable of defamatory meaning because they are not defamatory per se and the ordered statement does not reflect, injuriously on a person's reputation, or exposed, a person to public hatred or contempt, ridicule, shame or disgrace, or affect, a person adversely in his or her trade, business or profession. SBA list suggests that the only way it could have hurt Mr. Driehaus's reputation or harmed him in his professional capacity as a public official was by claiming that he engaged in illegal conduct while in office. In support of its argument, SBA list cites in Kim v. Ohio Elections Com. 89 Ohio Street 3D 139, 729N.E.D. 364, 2000, which held that the, sick, was capable of defamatory meaning because the cartoon implied the plaintiff committed an illegal act while in office. SBA list claims that its own statement that Rep. Driehaus voted for taxpayer-funded abortion is incapable of defamatory meaning because it does not allege or imply that Rep. Driehaus engaged in illegal conduct, as the defendant's statement implied in McKim. Did. Additionally, SBA list claims that its statement, that Rep. Drehaus ordered the company not to put up the billboard, 
is incapable of defamatory meaning because it was an innocuous statement that, unlike the cartoon in Wagim, did not imply that the public official committed any illegal conduct, nor did it reflect on Rep. Driehaus's integrity or suggest dishonest conduct on his part. Id. At 23. Although the court recognizes that. 818. 14. Defamation. Committing an illegal act while in office is certainly one way to evidence that Mr. Driehaus was harmed in his official capacity. There is absolutely no authority in Kim that an illegal act is the only way to evidence reputational harm. One. Second, SBA list made its statements in writing. Under Ohio law, libel is defined generally as a false written publication, made with some degree of fact, reflecting injuriously on a person's reputation, or exposing a person to public hatred, contempt, ridicule, shame or disgrace or affecting a person adversely in his or her trade, business or profession. There is no rule stating that a public official alleging defamation may not rely on false statements that injure his reputation, expose him to public hatred or contempt, or affect him in his profession as a public servant. Finally, whether a false statement is capable of inflicting injury depends on the totality of the circumstances. Mr. Driehaus maintains that accusing him of ordering Lamar advertising not to put up the SBA list billboard did further damage to his reputation for fairness, honesty, and integrity by making it appear to his constituents and fellow members of the community that he had abused my power as a public official. Construing the facts in the light most favorable to the non-moving parte, the court finds that the taxpayer-funded statements and ordered statement are certainly capable of defamatory meaning. Food for Thought A classic case authored by Judge Learned Hand, Grant V. Reader's Digest Association, 151 F.G. 733, to D. Sir. 1945, arose out of an article insinuating that the plaintiff may have been in general sympathy with the objects and methods of the Communist Party. Judge Hand said the court need not decide whether right-thinking people would shun, despise, or condemn a lawyer who had communist sympathies, as long as there are some people who would feel that way. For the most part courts no longer refer to the opinions of right-thinking people. The more commonly accepted definition is set forth in Restatement, second, of Dort's Section 559. A communication is defamatory if it tends so to harm the reputation of another as to lower him in the estimation of the community or to deter third persons from associating with him. 1. Ohio courts have never held that imputation of a crime is the only basis for a defamation claim by a public official. If there were such a rule, it is safe to assume that decisions like Vail v. Plain Dealer Public Co., 72 Ohio Street 3D 279, 649 N.T.D. 2005 involving public officials not accused of crimes, would have applied such a rule. Moreover, the out-of-state decisions cited by SBA list do not stand for the propositions for which they are cited. Datcher, Salsred, 174 with 735,498 N.W.32-232-134-1992, does not hold that a candidate may not use loss of votes to show defamation, only that he may not rely solely on loss of votes? Mr. Driehaus does not claim loss of votes, but rather that lost votes was one indicator of his reputational and professional injury, among others. Similarly, there is no rule that a public official may never predicate a defamation claim on a false attack on his voting record. See also Form V. Marina, 66 Hall, 72, 655 P.D. 875, 876, 1982. An attack on the official's voting record was reasonably susceptible to a defamatory interpretation. In this case, unlike the cases cited by SBA list, defendant has evidence that the attack on his voting record rises to the level of an injury to his reputation for character and personal integrity. A. What is defamatory? 819. 
See Larissa Litsky, Defamation, Reputation, and the Myth of Community, 71 Washington L. Reverend 1, 1996. The statement that Rep. Drehos voted for taxpayer-funded abortion might not lower him in the estimation of certain communities, liberal Democrats, let's say, but the statement would have been harmful in light of Rep. Drehos's reputation as a pro-life member of Congress. Take your guess as to whether the following accusations are defamatory. 1. A drug stop only reported druggers' violations to the Interstate Commerce Commission. Plaintiff lost trucking business. Carly V. McKay, 28 and.y.s.2d327, NYSOP. CT. 1941. 2. Police Chief Isadumstato.b. Fink. City of T. 443 Newtons.w.2d632, SD 1989. 3. Ziza Homosexual. Robinson v. Radio 1, Incorporated, 695 F. Sup. To D425. And D Tex. 2010. Murphy v. Millennium Radio Group LLC, 2010 WL 1372408, DJ 2010. 4. Statement that a famous lawyer who spoke at a bar association conference for Nofi on the promise that his hotel expenses would be covered charged clothes that he purchased in a hotel shop to the bar association. LEV, Orlando Daily Newspapers, Incorporated, 389F.2D579, 5th Sir. 1967. 5. Statement that a Democrat running for governor had once considered running as an independent made by state Democratic chairman to hurt the candidacy of the plaintiff several days prior to the election. Frincy v. Hansen, 140N.W.2D259, Wisp. 1966. 6. Zeiss and Uncle Tom. Moore v. P.W. Publishing Co., 209N.E.D.412, Ohio 1965. 7. The district attorney was electioneering and he was the David Duke of Chester County. Massillery v. Philadelphia Newspapers, Incorporated, 674A.2D1050, Par. 1996. 8. Husband and wife are separated and getting a divorce. Andreessen v. Guard Publishing Co., 489P.2D944, or. 1971. 9. A Russian princess was raped by Rasputin. Yusupa v. Metro Goldwyn Mayer Pictures, Limited, 50 TLR 851, 1934. 10. X is suffering from terminal cancer. Ravnik RV. Bogajivlinsky, 782 N.E.D. 508, Mass. 2003, Golo v. Inquirer, Star Group, Incorporated, 681 N.E.D. 1282, NY 1997. 11. Attorney had been a prosecutor in South Africa. Partington v. Ugliosi, 825 F. Sup. 906-913-D. Ha. 1993. 12. She is a bitch and she and her husband hate Jews. Ward v. Zelikovsky, 643-A.D. 972-978-NJ-1994. 13. Landlord's statement that another landlord had a reputation for not closing deals. Birch v. Upland, 639 N.W.2D 455, 461, 462, and D. 2002. 14. 
the city chief medical examiner issued false and misleading reports about deaths in order to protect police. Rose v. New York Times Co. 623 N.E.D. 1163. N.Y. 1993. 15. He is an evil man. Aftrex, Limited v. General Electric Co. 555 N.Y.S.D. 903. N.Y. App. Div. 1990. 16. Newspaper article regarding Olympic security guard suspected of bombing, using terms such as ramble, homegrown failure, disgraced, and 82014. Defamation. Disaster regarding his prior employment, describing him as a fat, failed former sheriff's deputy, and referring to his having over-investigated everything, being a straight arrow who overdid everything, having turned minor incidents into federal cases, and being desperate to stand out as a hero. Jewel v. Knight Holdings, Incorporated. 23F. Sup. 2D348, SDNY1998. 17. A statement to a customer that a subcontractor's product is inferior and not engineered properly. Re. Engineered Framing Sys, Incorporated v. Vescom Structures, Incorporated, 2005 U.S. Dist. Lexus 26,295, 6, D&J2005. The answers to the above statements are, 1, no, 2, no. 3. Yes or no depending on the jurisdiction. 4. Yes. 5. No. 6. No. 7. Yes. 8. No. 9. Yes. 10. Yes or no depending on whether the defendant actually asserted that the plaintiff was dying. 11. Yes. 12. No. 13. Yes. 14. Yes. 15. Yes. 16. No. 17. Yes. Can you make sense out of the decisions? Assume that happily married couple live in a rural community where divorce is frowned upon. Why is a statement that the couple is divorced not defamatory? Some people tend to shun terminally ill cancer patients and refuse to associate with them. They are certainly wrong in doing so, but human nature is what it is. Shouldn't a statement that one is suffering from terminal cancer be defamatory? Answering these questions is more difficult today. At one time a statement about the plaintiff might be printed in the local newspaper, so a court can mortally ascertain the local norms, such as divorce being frowned upon. That made a statement defamatory or not. But what about a statement that is published in the online edition of a newspaper, picked up on blogs or Twitter, and transmitted all around the world? Which norms should govern the determination of whether the statement is defamatory? Courts have only begun the task of defining the relevant community against the background of instantaneous electronic communication. See Amy Kristen Saunders, Defining Community in the Age of the Internet, 15 Tom L. and Poly 21, 2010. For an in-depth treatment of what constitutes a defamatory statement, see Robert C. Post, The Social Foundations of Defamation Law, Reputation in the Constitution, 74 California L. Reverend 691, 1986, analyzes three distinct concepts of reputation that the common law has protected at various times, and the correspondence between these concepts and the kinds of social relationships that defamation law is designed to uphold. See also Joseph H. King, Jr., Defining the Internal Context for Communications Containing Allegedly Defamatory Headline Language, 71U. Sin. L. Reverend 863, 2003. C. The Form of Communication, Libel and Slander. Historically, the common law drew a sharp distinction between libel and slander. When a defamation was reduced to writing or was embodied in some permanent form such as a book or a painting, it fell into the category of libel. Slander, on the other hand, was the term used for defamations transmitted by the spoken word. A lot depended on the distinction. If the defamation was libelous, a plaintiff could recover presumed damages, that is, 
A jury could assess damages even though plaintiff could not prove that she suffered pecuniary loss. To be successful in an action for de facto opinion 821. Slander, a plaintiff had to establish actual pecuniary loss. Since very often plaintiffs in defamation actions did not suffer pecuniary loss but only had their reputation sullied, the libel, slander distinction was of considerable importance. But the story is more complex. Some categories of slander were considered to be so egregious that presumed damages could be awarded even if pecuniary loss was not established. If the defamatory statement accused the plaintiff of, one, a major, not a minor, crime, two, suffering from a loathsome disease, for example, leprosy or venereal disease, three, conduct that would affect the plaintiff in her business, trade, profession, or office, or, four, serious sexual misconduct, then slander would be treated as the equivalent of libel. And if all this were not sufficiently confusing, common law courts drew a distinction between statements that were defamatory on their face and those which required extrinsic evidence to prove the defamation. For example, to write of a woman that she had given birth to her first child is not defamatory on its face. If, however, the woman is unmarried, the statement is defamatory. Since to make out the defamation it is necessary to resort to extrinsic facts, the common law treated such written libels as if they were slander. Once they were treated as slander, a plaintiff could not recover presumed damages unless she were able to establish that she fit into one of the four categories which allowed presumed damages for slander. Whether any given form of communication constituted libel rather than slander became a question of considerable moment. What about a defamation made on radio or television? Is it libel or slander? Does it make a difference whether the speaker was reading from a script? We kid you not, see Hartman v. Winchell, 73 N.T.D. 30, 31, NY 1947. What about a speech made in Madison Square Garden in front of 15,000 people? See Restatement, 2nd, of Dort's Section 568, 1964. In the ensuing materials, we shall see that the distinctions between libel and slander are of lesser importance today as a result of decisions by the United States Supreme Court that sharply cut back on the ability of torts to award presumed damages. But, we caution you that the distinctions set forth above are not dead. One can find cases to this very day that resort to much of the common law nonsense. The district court in Drones, above, referred to the libel, slander distinction in concluding that the statements made by the interest group were capable of a defamatory meaning, but did not explain what difference it made to the analysis that the statements were in writing. D. Fact or Opinion. Green v. Cosby. 138 F. Sup. 3D 114, D. Mass. 2015. Mastro Yarni, J. I. Introduction. On December 10, 2014, Tamara Green filed a complaint alleging that William H. Kesby, Jr., defendant, publicly defamed her in statements made. 820-14. Defamation. By individuals operating at his direction and or within the scope of their employment. 4. Facts is alleged by plaintiffs. During the 1970s, defendant, an internationally known actor and comedian met each plaintiff and subsequently sexually assaulted her. With respect to plaintiff Green, on a certain date in the early 1970s, defendant offered her to pills, telling her they were over-the-counter cold medicine. She took the pills and became weak and dizzy. Defendant then drove plaintiff Green to her apartment, where he subjected her to sexual contact against her will and despite her repeated demands to stop. Plaintiff Green was unable to defend herself during the sexual assault because she remained weak and vulnerable. Many years later, in February of 2005, the Philadelphia Daily News published an interview with Plaintiff Green in which she publicly disclosed the sexual assault that had occurred in the 1970s. Plaintiff Green also disclosed the allegations during appearances on television shows around the same time. 
Nine years later, on or about February 7, 2014, Newsweek published an interview with Plaintiff Green in which she repeated her description of being sexually assaulted by defendant in the 1970s. Plaintiffs alleged that defendant, acting through his agents, issued statements to the media in response to the public disclosures made by plaintiffs. Defendant knew each statement was false at the time it was made. Despite knowing the statements were false, defendant directed the statements be made. Each of the statements was widely read by many people, including plaintiffs' families, friends, and neighbors, and plaintiffs suffered damages, including to their reputations, as a result of the publication of the statements. The statements were made as follows. A Newsweek Statement, February 7, 2014 Prior to the publication of Newsweek's interview with Plaintiff Green in February of 2014, defendant, acting through a publicist, believed by plaintiffs to be David Brokaw, Brokaw, made a statement to Newsweek. The publicist provided a statement to Newsweek while acting as defendant's authorized agent, employee, or authorized representative and he knew or should have known the statement was false when it was made. The statement was appended to the end of the story and read, in its entirety. This is a ten-year-old, discredited accusation that proved to be nothing at the time, and is still nothing. V. Discussion. C. Adequacy of plaintiff's defamation allegations. Having determined the laws of California and Florida are applicable, the court next considers the substance of plaintiff's defamation claims. Both California. De facto opinion 823. And Florida recognize the following essential elements of defamation. 1. A publication. 2. That is false. 3. Defamatory, meaning damaging to the good reputation of the person who is the subject of the statement. 4. Made by an actor with a requisite degree of fault. 5. Is not protected by any privilege. And, 6. Causes injury to the subject. C. For example, Jews for Jesus, Incorporated v. Rap, 997 so t 1098,1106, Fli.1008, Taos v. Loftus, 40 calories.4th683, 54 calories.rptr.3d775, 151 p.3d1185, 1209, 2007. Abrogated on other grounds by Oasis West Realty, LLC v. Goldman. 51 calories.4th811, 124 calories.rptr.3d256, 250 p.3d1150, 2011, Blatty v. NY Times Co., 42 calories.3d1033, 232 calories.rptr, 542, 728p.d1177, 1182 1,186. 1,986. 1. The statements. Factual, true, defamatory, of and concerning. In order for a defamation claim to survive a motion to dismiss, the allegedly defamatory statement must contain at least one false factual assertion which is also defamatory. See, for example, Jews for Jesus, Incorporated, 997 so dotted yet 1,106, tans. 54 calories. Dot or PTR. Dot 3D 775,151 P.3D at 1,109. Depending on the nature of the statement and the context in which it was made, courts will place different emphasis on these two components. In this case, defendant argues three of the four statements at issue do not contain factual assertions that are false, or even capable of being false. Defendant further asserts that even if the statements can be understood as expressing false factual assertions, they are not defamatory because they do not hold plaintiffs up to contempt hatred, scorn, or ridicule or tend to impair, their, standing in the community. Def.S. Mem. 1415. Quote the Oak v. Nugent, 321 F.3D 35, 
40, first circa 2003, the court addresses each statement individually, applying California law to the Newsweek statement regarding plaintiff Green. Before delving into the state-specific analysis, the court considers the Supreme Court case law applicable to defamation cases in which the parties dispute whether a statement contains actionable statements of fact or protected statements of opinion. In Milkovich v. Lorraine Journal Co., the Supreme Court reviewed the history of the tort of defamation and development of constitutional protections to ensure the tort does not interfere with the freedom of expression guaranteed by the First Amendment. 497 U.S. 1, 21, 100 N.S.C.T. 2695 111 liters.ed.d1, 1990. The court reviewed existing constitutional requirements, including that plaintiffs must a. establish the requisite level of fault on the part of a defendant and b. allege a statement that can reasonably b. interpreted as stating actual facts about an individual. Id. at 20110s.ct. 2695. Quoting Hustler Magazine, Incorporated v. Falwell. 485 U.S. 46, 50, 108 S.C.T. 876, 99 liters.ed.t41, 1988. The court considered whether to create an additional constitutional privilege for anything that might be labeled opinion. Id. At 18, 110 S.C.T. 2695. In declining to adopt such a privilege, the court explained there is not a clear division between statements of opinion and fact. If a speaker says, in my opinion John Jones is a liar, the speaker, implies knowledge of facts which lead to the conclusion that Jones told an untruth and, as a result, such a statement may imply a false assertion of fact by failing to state what it was based on or because any facts referenced are incorrect or incomplete. Id. The Supreme Court directs courts to determine whether a reasonable fact finder could conclude that the, allegedly defamatory, statements, imply an assertion, of. 824.14. Defamation fact, and whether that assertion is sufficiently factual to be susceptible of being proved true or false, rather than simply determine whether a statement expresses an opinion or asserts a fact. Id. At 21, 100 NS.CT. 2695. At this stage of the litigation, the court's concern is whether any fact contained in or implied by an allegedly defamatory statement is susceptible to being proved true or false, if so capable, defendant cannot avoid application of defamation law by claiming the statement expresses only opinion. C. Ferland O. V. Hampshire, 74 California App. 4th 1394, 88 California RPTR. D. 843, 849, 1999, Sombrano V. Devonism, 484 So. D. 603, 606, Florida Florida Dist. C. T. App. 1986. Ultimately, if plaintiff's claims survive this initial challenge, Defendant will have the opportunity, at the procedurally appropriate time, to fully develop a defense based on the truth of the facts contained in or implied by each statement. A. The Newsweek statement pertaining to Plaintiff Green. 2. Opinion or Fact. In addition to asserting the Newsweek statement is not defamatory since it is substantially true, defendant argues it is not defamatory because it expresses an opinion rather than a fact capable of being proved false. California courts have interpreted the Supreme Court's decision in Milkovich as establishing that the First Amendment only prohibits defamation liability for the expression of an opinion where the factual basis for the opinion is provided, the facts provided are true, and the opinion does not imply false assertions of facts. Get FNGN, Incorporated v. Patent Boggs LLP. 220 California App. 4th 141162 California RPTR. 
2013, citing Milkovich, 497 U.S. at 1819, 110 S.C.T. 2695 and McGarry v. University of San Diego, 154 California App. 497, 64 California RPTR. 3D467, 479, 2007. Accordingly, it is not the literal truth or falsity of each word or detail used in the statement which determines whether it is a potentially defamatory statement of fact, rather, the determinative question is whether the gist or sting of the statement is true or false, benign or defamatory, in substance. Ringler-Rousseau's. Incorporated v. Wa. Cass. Co. 80 California App. 4th 1165, 96 California RPTR. 2D 136, 150, 2000. Emphasis omitted. Internal quotation omitted. See also Compound Ellie. 51 calories. RPTR. 897. The court can, as a matter of law, find a statement is not actionable, but when an allegedly defamatory statement can reasonably be interpreted as either stating or implying a false fact or articulating an opinion, California courts put the issue before a jury. C. Periento, 88 California RPTR. To D. 849, if the court concludes the statement could reasonably be construed as either fact or opinion, the issue should be resolved by a jury. In determining whether a statement is capable of being interpreted as asserting or implying a fact, California courts use the totality of the circumstances test. This test has three parts. 1. Whether the general tenor of the entire work negates the impression that the defendant was asserting an objective fact. 2. Whether the defendant used figurative or hyperbolic language that negates the impression. And 3. Whether the statement in question is susceptible of being proved true or false. Lieberman v. Figure 338 F.3D 1076,1080, 9th Sir. 2003. Citations omitted, applying California law. De facto opinion 825. As to the first part, general tenor, defendant points that the statement was made in response to serious charges and argues this is a strong contextual signal that the statement is non-actionable opinion. Specifically, defendant suggests the court should treat the response as a predictable opinion, which an average reader would understand as a one-sided attempt to bolster his position in a dispute. Several California courts have used the phrase predictable opinion to describe a statement that due to the context in which it is made, is understood to be one-sided expression of opinion rather than fact. However, California courts have only applied the principle to cases with the statements related to pending or completed litigation. Cedrium Stone and Limited v. May Salward Incorporated, 2014 WL 4181026. At 6, CD California Best 18th, 2014, treating statement attributed to attorneys, and linking to recently filed complaint, as predictable opinion rather than statement of fact. Amerit Orange Breedables, LLCV, Ozimals, Incorporated, 2013 WL 3460707, at 4, NT California July 9, 2013. Binding the broad context of a blog entry, describing reasons for bringing lawsuit, demonstrated that the statement was a predictable opinion, rather than an actionable statement of fact, get FNGN, Incorporated, 162 calories. PTR.3D at 842. Binding tweet by attorney identifying opposing lawsuit as frivolous was a predictable opinion that could not be the basis for a defamation claim. Periento, 88 calories.rptr.d at 850. Binding statements describing lawsuit as frivolous expressed only predictable opinion and could not be the basis of a defamation action, especially because context and literary don't of work where statements appeared clearly indicated to readers they were reading the subjective views of partisan participants to litigation. Info. Control Corporation v. Genesis 1 Compt. Corp. 
611 f.t 781, 784, 9th sir. 1980, coining phrase predictable opinion to describe a statement unlikely to be understood by audience as a statement of fact because of the litigation position of the maker of the statement. The context in which defendant's agent made the Newsweek statement was different from the context in which California courts have identified statements as predictable opinions. At the time this statement was made there was no pending litigation between defendant and plaintiff Green. Some readers may have understood any statement from defendant to have been predictably self-serving, but there was no litigation pending when a publicist for defendant provided the statement to the media. Accordingly, the court cannot determine at this stage that the statement fits within the predictable opinion doctrine recognized in California. Nor can the court conclude that the general tenor of the statement negates the impression that defendant was asserting an objective fact. Turning next to the specific language of the statement, the phrase, discredited accusation that proved to be nothing at the time, and is still nothing, has an obvious literal meaning, specifically, that plaintiff Green's allegations are completely without merit and have been so proven. The operative phrases are not surrounded by hyperbole or figurative language that undercuts their literal meaning. C.F. Standing calm, undiscipline of U.S. Dist. Court V. Yagman, 55F.3D 1430, 1440, 9th Sir. 1995, applying California law, treating as rhetorical hyperbole the word dishonest because it was used within a string of colorful adjectives. See also Knievel v. ESPN, 393F.3D 1068, 1077, 9th Sir. 2005, describing slang phrases such as the I use roll and deep and flicking it with much flavor. 826 14. Defamation. As using loose and figurative language incapable of a literal interpretation. The phrasing used here allows a reasonable fact finder to conclude a statement, imply an assertion of defamatory fact, specifically, that there was some unidentified investigation or hearing into the allegations which officially determined plaintiff Green's accusation was false. Ringelursos. Incorporated, 96 California RPTR. To D at 149. Emphasis omitted. Finally, the court considers whether defendant's response, directly or by implication, makes a statement which is susceptible of being proved true or false. To the extent defendant's response implies an investigation into plaintiff Green's allegations was conducted, it is provable as true or false. Additionally, the gist of the statement, that plaintiff Green fabricated her allegations, is also provable as true or false. It may take a trial to produce such proof, but defendant's allegations are sufficiently specific to be susceptible to proof or disproof. James V. San Jose Mercury News, Incorporated, 17 California App, 4th 1, 20 California RPTR, to D 890, 898, 1993, binding statements not susceptible of being proved true or false because the statements contain too many generalizations, elastic terms, and subjective elements for to be clear what facts were stated or implied, see also Amaretta Ranch Breedables, LLC. 2013 WL 3460707. F5. Binding statement might be provable as true or false, though it would require a lengthy lawsuit, but determining other factors prevented statement from being defamatory. Based on this totality of the circumstances analysis, the court concludes a reasonable fact finder could determine, based on the context and content, the Newsweek statement asserted or implied factual statements that were susceptible of being proved true or false. 3. Defamatory meaning. The court considers next whether the statement could be understood to have a defamatory meaning. Analogizing to Gibney v. Fritzgibbon, 547 Fed. X. Ill. 3D Sir. 2013, unpublished, defendant argues an assertion by a person that an allegation is unfounded cannot reasonably be viewed as exposing the person who made the allegation to scorn or ridicule. 
The facts of this case are easily distinguished from those in Jibney and the differences require the court to reach a different conclusion here. In Jibney, the plaintiff had contacted a company that did business with his employer to allege his employer was improperly billing the company. The company responded that the allegations had been investigated and determined to be unfounded. The Third Circuit held that the company's response, even if untrue, was not capable of a defamatory meaning because a statement that his allegations were unfounded would not lower him in the estimation of the community or deter third parties from associating or dealing with him. At 114, quoting Tucker v. Leola, Daily News, 577 Pascals, 598, 848A.D. 113, 124, 2004. This conclusion makes sense where the detail of business billing procedures leaves open the possibility that a person making an allegation of wrongdoing could have made an honest mistake. In this respect, it is hard to even compare an allegation regarding billing procedures to a sexual assault allegation. A neutral tone responds relative to an investigation of billing history does not impart any flavor of de facto opinion 827. Fabrication or moral repugnance, both of which attach to defendant's statement and its suggestion that plaintiff intentionally lied about being sexually assaulted. Unlike a billing dispute, plaintiff Green's allegations detail a specific set of events that either occurred substantially as alleged or were fabricated, leaving no room for an honest mistake. The potential for reputational damage is increased where the response lacks the neutral tone conveyed in Jibney by the word unfounded, which means lacking a sound basis in fact. Webster's Third New International Dictionary 2496, 1971. Defendant referred to serious sexual assault allegations as discredited and nothing, both words suggesting that the allegations were not made in good faith. Given the different nature of the allegations in this case and the wording of the response, the court cannot conclude here that as a matter of law, defendant's response is incapable of negatively impacting plaintiff Green's reputation within the community. Ultimately, it will be up to a jury to decide whether those who read the Newsweek statement understood it to have been defamatory. At this stage, however, the court finds defendant has not identified sufficient grounds for dismissal of plaintiff Green's claims based on the Newsweek statement. Food for thought. Why doesn't the statement by a public relations flag to Newsweek that the plaintiff's allegation is 10 years old and proves nothing fall within the predictable opinion exception in California? That doctrine protects statements that are obviously self-serving when considered in context. Isn't this exactly the sort of thing one would expect a publicist to say in response to an allegation of misconduct against a celebrity? Even if there were no pending litigation, and the statement therefore would not be within the narrow exception for predictable opinions, why is he not on the opinion side of the fact? Opinion distinction is determined by the California three-part test. In Lieberman v. Figure, 338 F.3D 1076, 9th Sir. 2003, cited in Green, the court held that an attorney's references, during an interview on court TV, to a psychiatrist as Flooney Tunes, crazy, nuts, and mentally imbalanced, were protected statements of opinion. The court relied on the context of the statements which was a bitter and public dispute between the attorney and the psychiatrist over payment for the psychiatrist's service as an expert witness. The reasonable expectations of the audience would be that the lawyer's hyperbolic language would not be understood literally, as stating facts capable of being proven false. 338 F.3D at 1080 In the Milkovich case discussed in Green, the Supreme Court declined to create a per se rule of First Amendment protection for statements of opinion. Nonetheless, as a matter of common law, a publication will not be defamatory unless it contains statements of fact capable of being proven false. We are so accustomed to hearing spin in the news media that it is possible to forget that the statement of a public relations agent that this is a discredited allegation can be defamatory. In cases like this, courts must continue to struggle with the common law distinction between fact and opinion. The court in Green used a three-part test from California. 
828.14. Defamation. Law to determine whether the statement reprinted by Newsweek was one of fact or opinion. Other courts use a four-factor test first articulated in Oilman v. Evans, 750F.2D 970, E.C. Sir. 1984. The opinion written by then-Judge Kenneth Starr, later special prosecutor investigating the alleged wrongdoings of President Bill Clinton, is scholarly and exceptionally well-reasoned. The totality of circumstances test it articulates has been quite influential. First, we will analyze the common usage or meaning of the specific language of the challenge statement itself. Our analysis of the specific language under scrutiny will be aimed at determining whether the statement has a precise core of meaning for which a consensus of understanding exists or, conversely, whether the statement is indefinite and ambiguous. Readers are, in our judgment, considerably less likely to infer facts from an indefinite or ambiguous statement than one with a commonly understood meaning. Second, we will consider the statement's verifiability. Is the statement capable of being objectively characterized as true or false? And so far as a statement lacks a plausible method of verification, a reasonable reader will not believe that the statement has specific factual content. And, in the setting of litigation, the trier of fact obliged in a defamation action to assess the truth of an unverifiable statement will have considerable difficulty returning a verdict based upon anything but speculation. Third, moving from the challenged language itself, we will consider the full context of the statement, the entire article or column. For example, inasmuch as other, unchallenged language surrounding the allegedly defamatory statement will influence the average reader's readiness to infer that a particular statement has factual content. Finally, we will consider the broader context or setting in which the statement appears. Different types of writing have, as we shall more fully see, widely varying social conventions which signal to the reader the likelihood of a statement's being either fact or opinion. 750 f.2d979 Slash was just kidding, get over it. A variation on the fact, opinion distinction is presented by cases in which the defendant claims the statement was a joke, parody, or satire, and not intended to make a literally true or false statement about the plain if. Consider, for example. The incident which led to the case of New Times, Incorporated v. Isaacs, 146s.w.3d144, x. 2004. A 13-year-old, 7th grade student was given an assignment for Halloween, to write a scary story. He responded by writing a story about shooting a teacher and two classmates, for which he was arrested and held in jail for five days for making terroristic threats. An alternative newspaper in Dallas subsequently published a satirical article, entitled Stop the Madness, about the arrest and prosecution of a six-year-old for writing a book report about cannibalism, fanaticism, and disorderly conduct in Morris Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are. The article attributed fictional quotes to the judge and district attorney who had been involved in the case of the seventh grader. The school superintendent was quoted as saying, frankly, these kids scare the crap out of me, and then governor. De facto opinion 829. George W. Bush is to have said he was appalled that such material could find its way into the hands of a Texas schoolchild. This book clearly has deviant, violent sexual overtones. Parents must understand that zero tolerance means just that. We won't tolerate anything. When the district attorney and judge demanded an apology, the newspaper printed the following notice. Here's a clue for our cerebrally challenged readers who thought the story was real. It wasn't. It was a joke. We made it up. Not even Judge Wooden, we hope would throw a six-year-old girl in the slammer for writing a book report. Not yet, anyway. The trial court and the court of appeals held that there was a fact issue, precluding summary judgment, regarding whether a reasonable reader would believe the district attorney and judge really did and said the things reported in the article. The Texas Supreme Court, after an extensive discussion of principles from both constitutional law and the common law of a defamation, 
held that a hypothetical reasonable reader can tell the difference between satire and factual reporting. As the relevant cases show, the hypothetical reasonable person, the mythic Cheshire cat who darts about the pages of the tort law, is no dullard. He or she does not represent the lowest common denominator, but reasonable intelligence and learning. He or she can tell the difference between satire and sincerity. At 157, quoting Patrick V. Superior Court, 27 California RPTR. To D883, 887, California CT. App. 1994. Noting that the reasonable reader might understand the article is satire even if some readers did not get the joke, the court listed all of the features of the story that should have clued in the reader that the article should not be taken literally, including the quote attributed to the six-year-old. It's bad enough people like sailing or it Wayne are dangerous, but Sendak. Give me a break, for Christ's sake. Excuse my French. As the court asked, rhetorically, would a six-year-old be able to comment intelligently on the works of sailing or it Wayne, while using expressions like, excuse my French? The lesson is, even in Texas, comma one an author is entitled to rely on readers to exercise a little bit of intelligence and common sense. Hyperbolic language is generally treated as opinion, not a provably false statement of fact in reviews of books, movies, and restaurants. In the well-known case of Mr. Chow of New York v. St. Scherzer S.A., 759F.D219, to D. 1985, a reviewer for the Gold, Mill and Restaurant Guide published a scathing review of a Chinese restaurant. It read, in part, While his London restaurant enjoys an honorable reputation, although it is clearly overrated, the branch which the clever Mr. Chow has just opened in New York is simply astounding from a culinary point of view. In a pinch, you might not care that you had to wait ten minutes to obtain chopsticks instead of forks, that it is impossible to have the basic condiments, soy sauce, hot sauce, etc., on the table, that the principal concern of the waiters, Italians, is to sell you expensive alcoholic drinks, but the last straw is that the dishes on the menu, very short, have only the slightest relationship to the essential spirit of Chinese. 1. Wendell who is originally from Texas and inordinately proud of that fact, figures many of you would be thinking this anyway, so we might as well preempt the joke. 830.14. Defamation. Cuisine. With our heavy and greasy dough, the dumplings, on our visit, resembled baked Italian ravioli. The steamed meatballs had a disturbingly gamey taste, the sweet and sour pork contained more dough, badly cooked, and meat, and the green peppers which accompanied it remained still frozen on the plate. The chicken with chili was rubbery and the rice, soaking, for some reason, in oil, totally insipid. Had we been specially punished for being so pretentious as to drink only tea? Apparently not, for the drinkers of alcohol seemed as badly off as we. At a nearby table, the Peking lacquered duck, although ordered in advance, was made up of only one dish, instead of the three traditional ones, composed of pancakes the size of a saucer and the thickness of a finger. At another table, the egg rolls had a gauge of andouillette sausages, and the dough the thickness of large tagliatelle. No matter, since the wine kept flowing. We do not know where Mr. Chow recruits his cooks, but he would do well to send them for instruction somewhere in Chinatown. There, at least, they still know the traditions. 759 F. D. 221 222. While some of the statements, such as the sweet and sour pork contain more dough than meat, might theoretically be capable of being proven false, the court, applying the factors in oil men v. Evans concluded that five of the six statements in the passage above were opinion rather than fact and context. The review was an exaggerated or hyperbolic way of making the following point, which clearly would be protected as a statement of opinion. I found it difficult to get the basic seasonings on my table. The sweet and sour pork was too doughy for my tastes. The green peppers served with the pork were not hot enough. The fried rice was too oily. 
and the pancakes served with a Peking duck were too thick. Good. At 228, only the statement that the restaurant served Peking duck in one dish rather than the traditional three could be considered a statement of fact. E. Communicating the defamation to others' publication. In order to be held liable for defamation, the defendant must communicate the defamatory statement to a third party. A term of art for this element of the tort is publication. The defendant is responsible only for intentional or negligent communication of a defamation. Rosser and Keaton on Torts Section 113, 5th ed. 1984, note that Courts have never imposed strict liability on the defendant for accidental and non-negligent publication of defamatory matter. There is in fact no liability for publication which the defendant did not intend and could not reasonably anticipate, as in the case of words spoken with no reason to suppose that anyone but the plaintiff would overhear them, or a sealed letter sent to the plaintiff himself which is unexpectedly opened and read by another. An interesting twist on the publication element occurs when the plaintiff is, in effect, compelled to repeat a defamatory statement about himself or herself. In Van Gogh Transport Company v. New York City Board of Education, 971 F. Sup. 90, EDNY 1997, a corporation with a contract to transport children for the board. E. Communicating the defamation to others. Publication 831. Of education sued for libel after the board sent a letter explaining its reason for denying to renew the contract. The letter stated that the board had received allegations of criminal conduct by employees of the Transportation Corporation including the payment of bribes to government officials. The defendant argued that the plaintiff had essentially consented to the publication of the defamatory statement when it entered the information about the allegations of criminal conduct into the city's computerized system for managing applications for government contracts. The court held that the plaintiff had adequately pled the publication element even though it had voluntarily submitted the information, because there was a high degree of compulsion associated with the process of applying for a government contract, and because the plaintiff had no power to control the subsequent dissemination of the information. Courts are not of one mind as to whether an employee who repeats a defamatory statement about himself in a subsequent job application can lay the blame for the communication of the defamation at the doorstep of the defendant who made the accusation solely to the plaintiff. In Sullivan v. Baptist Memorial Hospital, 995. S.W.D. 569, Tennessee. 1999, plaintiff, a was fired because the hospital believed that she was stealing medical devices from the hospital's neonatal unit and giving the devices to another hospital in which she was a part-time nurse. The nurse denied the accusations. In seeking employment at other hospitals, the nurse was compelled by prospective employers to explain why she was terminated. In doing so, the plaintiff herself repeated the defamatory charges. Her contention was that the employer who made the defamatory charges can reasonably foresee that the defamation would have to be communicated to others and should thus bear the responsibility for the communication. The Tennessee Court reviewed the authority nationally and concluded that the majority of courts refused to hold an employer liable for defamation communicated by an employee to prospective employers. The court Kweklinski v. Mobile Chemical Co., 837A.2759, Connecticut 2004, Comprehensive Review of Authority Pro and Con, White v. Blue Cross and Blue Shield, 809N.T.D1034, Mass. 2004. The Tennessee Court cited an article by Louis B. Ebel. Self-publication defamation, employee right or employee burden? 47 Bale R.L. Reverend 745, 779, 780, 1995, in which the author argues. A shutdown of communication would hurt both employees and employers. Employees falsely accused of misconduct may be wrongfully terminated because they would never have a chance to rebut the false accusations. Employees who may be able to improve substandard job performances may fail to do so because needed feedback is withheld.
it seems that both employees and employers stand to lose if employers adopt a policy of silence. Unfortunately, employees will bear the costs of such a policy without a corresponding benefit. Even if one were to agree with the Tennessee court, might not Judge Drager still be correct in Van Gogh? The requirement of reporting alleged crimes was mandated by the very governmental agency that was the defamer. On the other hand, there was no compulsion for the plaintiff to seek additional governmental contracts. See SAC on defamation, sections to dot 5.2, 8.2, 2007, Bernard Dijak, defamation in an employment context, selected issues, 625 PLI slash lit 829, 2000. 830-14. Defamation. Secondary publishers and transmitters. Those who publish newspapers and books are subject to the same rules that govern those who author defamatory material. They are not vicariously liable for the statements of the authors but they are held to whatever standards of care the law imposes on anyone who communicates defamatory material. A special problem arises with regard to secondary publishers such as libraries, bookstores, and news vendors. It would seem unjust and impractical to hold them liable for selling or distributing defamatory material. Restatement, second, of Dort's Section 581 recognizes a limited privilege for such secondary disseminators of information. They cannot be held liable unless they know or have reason to know of the defamatory content of the material that they are distributing. Statutes in many states immunize radio or TV stations who lease time to purchasers who in turn defame over the airwaves. An important issue in modern defamation and privacy law concerns the liability of websites, search engines, content hosts, internet service providers, and other online intermediaries for publishing statements that would otherwise be potentially tortious. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, CDA, creates nearly absolute immunity for online intermediaries, stating that, and no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. 47 U.S.C. Section 230, C1. This immunity is supported by several congressional findings and statements of policy concerning the value of online free speech, for example. The Internet and other interactive computer services offer a forum for a true diversity of political discourse, unique opportunities for cultural development, and myriad avenues for intellectual activity. The Internet and other interactive computer services have flourished, to the benefit of all Americans, with a minimum of government regulation. 47 U.S.C. Section 230. A 3, 4. Passage of the statute was motivated by decisions such as Stratton Oakmont, Incorporated v. Prodigy Services Co. 1995 WL 323,700N, NYSOP. CT. 1995, which held an electronic bulletin board service liable for republishing defamatory material. In a sense, content hosts such as Yahoo, Facebook, and YouTube are the electronic equivalent of newspapers, magazines, broadcasters and the printers of pamphlets and posters. Why should they be treated differently? Proponents of Section 230 respond that the decentralized structure of the Internet makes it extremely difficult for online service providers to control the content of information to which they provide access. In addition, online communications seldom involve only one intermediary. The late Senator Dud Stevens famously described the Internet as a series of tubes, and the process of accessing an online communication often involves many of these tubes including those belonging to an Internet service provider, such as a cable or telephone company, a search engine, a content host, such as YouTube or a blog hosting service, and backbone providers that transmit. E-communicating the defamation to others. Publication 833. Information between networks. Section 230 of the CDA was intended to clarify that these actors should not be deemed publishers for the purposes of liability. Publication generally involves some process of reviewing, editing, 
or deciding whether to make available or withdraw content. Thus, many online intermediaries are not publishers, as that notion was developed in the common law of a defamation and privacy, because they take a purely passive role with respect to the information they convey. As the following case shows, however, online republication of defamatory material can cause serious harm, so plaintiffs may try to plead a theory of recovery that is not barred by the CDA. Barnes v. Yahoo, Incorporated. 570F.3D 1096.90H Doctor 2009 Jules. Oskalane, J. We must decide whether the Communications Decency Act of 1996 protects an Internet service provider from suit where undertook to remove from its website material harmful to the plaintiff but failed to do so. I. This case stems from a dangerous, cruel, and highly indecent use of the Internet for the apparent purpose of revenge. In late 2004, Cecilia Barnes broke off a lengthy relationship with her boyfriend. For reasons that are unclear, he responded by posting profiles of Barnes on a website run by Yahoo, Incorporated, Yahoo. According to Yahoo's member directory, a public profile is a page with information about you that other Yahoo members can view. Your profile allows you to publicly post information about yourself that you want to share with the world. Many people post their age, pictures, location, and hobbies on their profiles. Through Yahoo's online service, Computer users all over the country and the world can view such profiles. Barnes did not authorize her now former boyfriend to post the profiles, which is hardly surprising considering their content. The profiles contained nude photographs of Barnes and her boyfriend, taken without her knowledge, and some kind of open solicitation, whether express or implied is unclear, to engage in sexual intercourse. The ex-boyfriend then conducted discussions in Yahoo's online chat rooms, posing as Barnes and directing mail correspondence to the fraudulent profiles he had created. The profiles also included the addresses, real and electronic, and telephone number at Barnes' place of employment. Before long, men whom Barnes did not know were peppering her office with emails, phone calls, and personal visits, all in the expectation of sex. In accordance with Yahoo policy, Barnes mailed Yahoo a copy of her photo ID and a signed statement denying her involvement with the profiles and requesting their removal. One month later, Yahoo had not responded but the undesired advances from unknown men continued. Barnes again asked Yahoo by mail to remove the profiles. Nothing happened. The following month, Barnes sent Yahoo. 834.14. Defamation. To more mailings. During the same period, a local news program was preparing to broadcast a report on the incident. The day before the initial air date of the broadcast, Yahoo broke its silence. Its director of communications, Miss Osako, called Barnes and asked her to fax directly the previous statements she had mailed. Miss Osako told Barnes that she would have personally walked the statements over to the division responsible for stopping unauthorized profiles and they would take care of it. Barnes claimed to have relied on this statement and took no further action regarding the profiles and the trouble they had caused. Approximately two months passed without word from Yahoo, at which point Barnes filed this lawsuit against Yahoo in Oregon State Court. Shortly thereafter, the profiles disappeared from Yahoo's website, apparently never to return. Barnes' complaint against Yahoo is somewhat unclear but it appears to allege two causes of action under Oregon law. First, the complaint suggests a tort for the negligent provision or non-provision of services which Yahoo undertook to provide. As Barnes pointed out in her briefs, Oregon has adopted Section 323 of the Restatement, Second, of Torts, 1965, which describes the elements of this claim. For the sake of brevity, we refer to this tort, which is really a species of negligence, as a negligent undertaking. Barnes also refers in her complaint and in her briefs to Yahoo's promise to remove the indecent profiles and her alliance thereon to her detriment. We construe such references to allege a cause of action under Section 90 of the Restatement, Second, of Contracts, 1981. 
After Yahoo removed the action to federal court, it moved to dismiss the complaint under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 12b-6. Yahoo contended that Section 230c-1 of the Communications Decency Act, the Act, renders it immune from liability in this case. C-47 U.S.C. Section 230c-1 The District Court granted the motion to dismiss, finding that the Act did in fact protect Yahoo from liability as a matter of law. Barnes timely appealed, claiming that, in the first place, the so-called immunity under Section 230c did not apply to the cause of action she has brought and that, even if it did, Yahoo did not fit under the terms of such immunity. 2. The District Court dismissed Barnes' claim on the ground that Section 230c, 1, makes Yahoo immune against any liability for the content that Barnes' former boyfriend had posted. We begin by analyzing the structure and reach of the statute itself. a. Section 230 of the Act also known as the Cox-Wyden Amendment, the amendment protects certain Internet-based actors from certain kinds of lawsuits. The amendment begins with a statement of findings and a statement of policy, in subsections to 30A and B, respectively. These are rather general, but they illustrate Congress' appreciation for the Internet as a forum for a true diversity of myriad avenues for intellectual activity, which has flourished with a minimum of government regulation. Section 230A, 3, 4. The statute's policy includes the promotion of interactive computer services in the vibrant. E. Communicating the defamation to others. Publication 835. And competitive free market for such services, as well as the encouragement of blocking and filtering technologies that empower parents to restrict their children's access to objectionable or inappropriate online material. Section 230b, 1, 2, and 4, 5. We have recognized in this declaration of statutory purpose to parallel goals. The statute is designed at once to promote the free exchange of information and ideas over the Internet and to encourage voluntary monitoring for offensive or obscene material. Carafano v. Metrosplush.com, Inc. 339F.3D 1119, 9th Sir. 2003. Though we keep these goals, which the statutory language declares, in mind, we must closely hew to the text of the statutory bar on liability in construing its extent. The operative section of the amendment is Section 230C, which states in full C. Protection for Good Samaritan Blocking and Screening of Offensive Material 1. Treatment of publisher or speaker No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. 2. Civil Liability No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of A. Any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. Or b. Any action taken to enable or make available to information content providers or others the technical means to restrict access to material described in paragraph 1. Following this approach, one notices that subsection c1 which after all is captioned treatment of publisher or speaker, precludes liability only by means of a definition. No provider or user of an interactive computer service, it says, shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Section 230C, 1, emphasis added. Subsection 230E, 3, makes explicit the relevance of this definition, for it cautions that, and no cause of action may be brought and no liability may be imposed under any state or local law that is inconsistent with this section. Bringing these two subsections together, it appears that subsection, C1, only protects from liability, 1, a provider or user of an interactive computer service, 2, whom a plaintiff seeks to treat, 
under a state law cause of action, as a publisher or speaker. 3. Of information provided by another information content provider. Barnes did not contest in the district court that Yahoo is a provider of an interactive computer service, and we have no trouble concluding that it qualifies as one. Nor is there any dispute that the information content, such as it is, at issue in this case was provided by another information content provider. The flashpoint in this case is the meaning of the publisher or speaker part of subsection, C1, and that is where we train our sites. 836.14. Defamation. A. By its terms, then, section, C1, only ensures that in certain cases an internet service provider will not be treated as the publisher or speaker of third-party content for the purposes of another cause of action. The question before us is how to determine when, for purposes of this statute, a plaintiff as the area of liability would treat a defendant as a publisher or speaker of third-party content. The cause of action most frequently associated with the cases on section 230 is defamation. This is not surprising, because, as we and some of our sister circuits have recognized, Congress enacted the amendment in part to respond to a New York State Court decision, Stratton Oakmont, Incorporated v. Prodigy Serves. Co. 1995 WL 323700N, NYSOP. CT. May 24, 1995, unpublished, which held that an Internet service provider could be liable for defamation. But a law's scope often differs from its genesis, and the language of the statute does not limit its application to defamation cases. Indeed, many causes of action might be premised on the publication or speaking of what one might call information content. A provider of information services might get sued for violating anti-discrimination laws, for fraud, negligent misrepresentation, and ordinary negligence, for false light, or even for negligent publication of advertisements that cause harm to third parties. Thus, what matters is not the name of the cause of action defamation versus negligence versus intentional infliction of emotional distress, what matters is whether the cause of action inherently requires the court to treat a defendant as the publisher or speaker of content provided by another. To put it another way, courts must ask whether the duty that the plaintiff alleges the defendant violated derives from the defendant's status or conduct as a publisher or speaker. If it does, Section 230C, 1, precludes liability. We have indicated that publication involves reviewing, editing, and deciding whether to publish or to withdraw from publication third-party content. We need not perform any intellectual gymnastics to arrive at this result, for it is rooted in the common sense and common definition of what a publisher does. One dictionary defines publisher, in relevant part, as the reproducer of a work intended for public consumption and also as one whose business is publication. See Webster's Third New International Dictionary 1837, Philip Babcock Boved, 1986. Thus, a publisher reviews material submitted for publication, perhaps edited for style or technical fluency, and then decides whether to publish it. Hill. Which leads us to whether Barnes, in her negligent undertaking claim, seeks to treat Yahoo as a publisher or speaker of the indecent profiles in order to hold Yahoo liable. A. The Oregon law tort that Barnes claims Yahoo committed derives from Section 323 of the Restatement, Second, of Torts, which states, One who undertakes, gratuitously or for consideration, to render services to another which he should recognize as necessary for the protection of the others. E. Communicating the defamation to others. Publication 837. Person or Things is subject to liability to the other for physical harm resulting from his failure to exercise reasonable care to perform his undertaking, if a. his failure to exercise such care increases the risk of such harm, or b. the harm is suffered because of the other's reliance upon the undertaking. Barnes argues that this torn claim would not treat Yahoo as a publisher. She points to her complaint, 
which acknowledges that although Yahoo may have had no initial responsibility to act, once, Yahoo, through its agent, undertook to act, it, must do so reasonably. According to Barnes, this makes the undertaking, not the publishing or failure to withdraw from publication, the source of liability. Under this theory, Barnes' cause of action would evade the reach of Section 230C entirely because it treats Yahoo not as a publisher, but rather as one who undertook to perform a service and did it negligently. We are not persuaded. As we implied above, a plaintiff cannot sue someone for publishing third-party content simply by changing the name of the theory from defamation to negligence. Nor can he or she escape Section 230C by labeling as negligent undertaking an action that is quintessentially that of a publisher. The word undertaking, after all, is meaningless without the following verb. That is, one does not merely undertake, one undertakes to do something. And what is the undertaking that Barnes alleges Yahoo failed to perform with due care? The removal of the indecent profiles that her former boyfriend posted on Yahoo's website. But removing content is something publishers do, and to impose liability on the basis of such conduct necessarily involves treating the liable party as a publisher of the content it failed to remove. In other words, the duty that Barnes claims Yahoo violated derives from Yahoo's conduct as a publisher, the steps it allegedly took but later supposedly abandoned, to to publish the offensive profiles. It is because such conduct is publishing conduct that we have insisted that Section 230 protects from liability any activity that can be boiled down to deciding whether to exclude material that third parties seek to post online. Although the tort of defamation is not the only form of liability for publishers to which subsection, C1, applies, its reach confirms our conclusion. Indeed, we note that Yahoo could be liable for defamation for precisely the conduct of which Barnes accuses it. Defamation law sometimes imposes an affirmative duty to remove a publication made by another. Courts have applied this principle, including in a case that reads like a low-tech version of the situation before us. In Heller v. Bianco, 111 California App, to D424, 244 P.D757, 758, California CT, App, 1952, a woman received a phone call from a man who sought to arrange an unconventional, but apparently amorous, Liaison. After being rebuffed, the man informed the woman that her phone number appeared on the bathroom wall of a local bar along with writing indicating that she was an unchaste woman who indulged in illicit amatory ventures. The woman's husband promptly called the bartender and demanded he remove the defamatory graffito, which the bartender said he would do when he got around to it. Shortly thereafter, the husband marched to the bar, policeman and O, and discovered the offending scrawl still gracing the wall. He defended his wife's honor by suing the bar's owner. The California Court of Appeal held that it was a question for the jury whether, after knowledge of its existence, the bar owner negligently allowed. 838.14. Defamation. The defamatory matter to remain for so long a time as to be chargeable with its republication. This holding suggests that Yahoo could have been sued under our facts for defamation, one of the elements of which is publication, which strongly confirms our view that Section 230C, 1, bars this lawsuit. 4. As we indicated above. Barnes' complaint could also be read to base liability on Section 90 of the Restatement, second, of contracts, which describes a theory of recovery often known as promissory estoppel. At oral argument, counsel for Barnes acknowledged that its tort claim might be recast in terms of promissory estoppel. We think it might, and in analyzing it as such now we add that liability for breach of promise is different from, and not merely a rephrasing of, liability for negligent undertaking. A. Bergen has accepted promissory estoppel as a theory of recovery. The principal criteria that determine when action renders a promise enforceable under this doctrine are, 1, a promise emi call and vertical bar, 2, which the promiser, as a reasonable person, could foresee would induce conduct of the kind which occurred, 3, actual reliance on the promise, 4, resulting in a substantial change in position.
A. Against this background, we inquire whether Barnes' theory of recovery under promissory estoppel would treat Yahoo as a publisher or speaker under the Act. As we explained above, subsection 230c, 1, precludes liability when the duty the plaintiff alleges the defendant violated derives from the defendant's status or conduct as a publisher or speaker. In a promissory estoppel case, as in any other contract case, the duty the defendant allegedly violated springs from a contract, an enforceable promise, not from any non-contractual conduct or capacity of the defendant. Barnes does not seek to hold Yahoo liable as a publisher or speaker of third-party content, but rather as the counterparty to a contract, as a promiser who had breached. How does this analysis differ from our discussion of liability for the tort of negligent undertaking? After all, even if Yahoo did make a promise, it promised to take down third-party content from its website, which is quintessential publisher conduct, just as what Yahoo allegedly undertook to do consisted in publishing activity. The difference is that the various torts we refer to above each derive liability from behavior that is identical to publishing or speaking. Publishing defamatory material. Publishing material that inflicts emotional distress, or indeed attempting to depublish hurtful material but doing it badly. To undertake a thing, within the meaning of the tort, is to do it. Promising is different because it is not synonymous with the performance of the action promised. That is, whereas one cannot undertake to do something without simultaneously doing it, one can, and often does, promise to do something. E. Communicating the defamation to others. Publication 839. Without actually doing it at the same time. Contract liability here would come not from Yahoo's publishing conduct, but from Yahoo's manifest intention to be legally obligated to do something, which happens to be removal of material from publication. Contract law treats the outwardly manifested intention to create an expectation on the part of another as a legally significant event. That event generates a legal duty distinct from the conduct at hand, be it the conduct of a publisher, of a doctor or of an overzealous uncle. Furthermore, a court cannot simply infer a promise from an attempt to publish of the sort that might support toward liability under Section 323 of the Restatement, second, of torts. For, as a matter of contract law, the promise must be as clear and well-defined as a promise that could serve as an offer, or that otherwise might be sufficient to give rise to a traditional contract supported by consideration. The formation of a contract, indeed, requires a meeting of the minds of the parties a standard that is measured by the objective manifestations of intent by both parties to bind themselves to an agreement. Thus a general monitoring policy, or even an attempt to help a particular person, on the part of an interactive computer service such as Yahoo does not suffice for contract liability. This makes it easy for Yahoo to avoid liability, it need only disclaim any intention to be bound. One might also approach this question from the perspective of waiver. The objective intention to be bound by a promise, which, again, Promissory estoppel derives from a promise that induces reasonably foreseeable, detrimental reliance, also signifies the waiver of certain defenses. A putative promiser might defend on grounds that show that the contract was never formed, the lack of acceptance or meeting of the minds, for example, or that he could not have intended as the evidence at first suggests he did. Unconscionability, duress, or incapacity, for example. Such defenses go to the integrity of the promise and the intention it signifies, they usually cannot be waived by the agreement they purport to undermine. But once a court concludes the promise is legally enforceable according to contract law, it has implicitly concluded that the promiser has manifestly intended that the court enforce his promise. By so intending, he has agreed to depart from the baseline rules, usually derived from tort or statute, that govern the mine run of relationships between strangers. Subsection 230c, 1, creates a baseline rule, no liability for publishing or speaking the content of other information service providers. And so far as Yahoo made a promise with a constructive intent that it be enforceable, it has implicitly agreed to an alteration in such bass line. Therefore, we conclude that, and so far as Barnes alleges a breach of contract claim under the theory of promissory estoppel, subsection 230c, 1, 
of the act does not preclude her cause of action. Because we have only reviewed the affirmative defense that Yahoo raised in this appeal. We do not reach the question whether Barnes has a viable contract claim or whether Yahoo has an affirmative defense under subsection 230C, 2, of the Act. V. For the foregoing reasons, we affirm in part, reverse in part, and remand for further proceedings. Each party shall bear its own costs. 840.14. Defamation. Food for thought. Online intermediaries such as Yahoo have reason to be nervous when they survey the common law of defamation. The bar owner in Heller. California case cited in the preceding case, was potentially liable for permitting defamatory graffiti to remain on the bathroom wall after being asked to remove it. The internet has sometimes been called a gigantic bathroom wall that all can see. If the owners of parts of this virtual bathroom wall could be held liable for all of the scrawled slurs left by users of their services, the costs of monitoring and responding to complaints would be enormous. On the other hand, there are very real costs that must be borne by victims of online defamation. Like the plaintiff in Heller who was alleged to be an unchaste woman who indulged in illicit amatory ventures. As the California court so delicately put it, the plaintiff and Barnes had to put up with men calling her, emailing her, and showing up at her workplace soliciting sex. Plainly her ex-boyfriend is to blame for exposing her to this harassment, but as you have seen in many cases throughout the book, a harm can have multiple causes, and tort law often provides a remedy against a party who contributes to the harm set into motion by another. Often it is for the jury to determine whether a joint tortfeasor should be held liable for playing a role in the plaintiff's injury, but in other cases courts relieve actors from liability, even where the harm was foreseeable, as it surely was in Barnes. Viewed by the court's argument that Yahoo isn't being held liable as a publisher for promising to remove a fake profile but then failing to follow through on its promise? The court says publishing, which is absolutely immune from liability, extends to any kind of decision whether to post, edit, or remove material generated by third parties. Why is that immunity lost when Yahoo promised to remove the material, that is, made a publication decision, but then forgot about it? The court says Yahoo is being held liable for promising, which is not synonymous with the underlying act of publishing. Yet a promise to publish, or not, seems indistinguishable in its effect on potential victims of defamation from a decision to publish, or not, which is immunized by the CDA. The court also notes that Section 230 of the CDA was intended to immunize any defendant who otherwise could be treated as a publisher for the purposes of liability. The plaintiff's promissory estoppel theory seems to treat Yahoo as a publisher, because only a publisher could meaningfully make, and break, a promise to remove the offending material. This case may signal a certain amount of judicial discontent with the breadth of the CDA, particularly given the prevalence of online harassment. Most readers of this book will be familiar with websites, chat rooms, the comments sections of blogs, or online forums that have degenerated into venues for the worst racist, misogynistic, anti-Semitic, and homophobic speech. Brian Leiter has called these sites cyber cesspools and wondered whether our existing approach to regulation, taking into account both tort law and the First Amendment, is adequate to deal with the harm caused by this speech. See Brian Leiter, Cleaning Cyber Cesspools, Google and Free Speech, in the Offense of Internet, Speech, Privacy and Reputation 155, Saul Levmer and Martha Nussbaum, Eds. 2010. Lighter. F did the arrow flit the target? Of and concerning the plaintiff 841. Recommends that online intermediaries set up some sort of process so that people can demonstrate that they have been harmed by speech in a cesspool maintained by that service provider. Because this speech is valueless, there is no reason not to require its removal. He recognizes that his proposal requires repeal of section 230 of the CDA, because as it stands there is no legal incentive for Yahoo, Google, or any other online intermediary to provide the redress Leiter proposes. Repealing the CDA, however, risks interfering with a free and open marketplace of ideas online. 
the debate over the best balance to strike between dignity harms and freedom of speech online is likely to be an ongoing one. F. D. I. D. The arrow hit the target. On concerning the plaintiff. Three Amigos SJL Restaurant, Incorporated v. CBS News Incorporated. 15n.y.s.3d36.ny app. Div. 2015 Jules. Tom, J.P. This defamation action arises out of a wholly accurate news report stating that federal authorities raided the Cheetah Club, Cheetahs, a Midtown Manhattan strip club, which they alleged to be run by the MAFI and at the center of an underground immigration ring that brought Russian and Eastern European women into the United States, forcing them to work as exotic dancers. On November 30, 2011, Federal agencies charged seven alleged members and associates of the Gambino and Bonanno crime families with, inter alia, transporting and harboring illegal aliens to work as dancers in New York area strip clubs. The indictment alleged that organized crime defendants controlled certain strip clubs and forced women who had been trafficked from Eastern Europe to dance at the clubs. As the women would be placed in sham marriages for citizenship purposes, the federal operation was called Operation Dancing Rights. On November 30, 2011, federal authorities executed a search warrant at Cheetahs. In support of the warrant's application, a federal officer averred that organized crime conspirators had negotiated terms with strip clubs, including Cheetahs, for trafficked dancers to perform because, in Cheetahs' case, other providers had not been able to meet the club's needs. According to the affidavit, the trafficked women were brought to Cheetahs, where they were video-recorded reading contracts and where the women thereafter danced. Plaintiffs take the position that no one at Cheetahs was involved in the crime's underlying operation dancing rights. The relationship of the Times Square plaintiffs and their employees the individual plaintiffs, to cheetahs is not explained, but there's no allegation that these entities are anything more than independent contractors. According to the complaint, Plaintiff Times Square Restaurant No. 1, Incorporated, No. 1, provides management and promotional services for the champagne and VIP lounge areas of cheetahs. Plaintiff Dominique O'Neill is president of No. 1, and Plaintiff Shot. 840-14. Defamation. Callahan is employed as a manager and consultant whose responsibilities include food and beverages as well as vendor coordination. Plaintiff Times Square Restaurant Group, the group, operates a booking agency for the talent, dancers, at Cheetahs, and Plaintiff Philip Stein is employed by the group as a manager. Plaintiff Three Amigos SJL Rest, Incorporated, doing business as the Cheetah Club, is not a party to this appeal. After the raid at Cheetahs, defendant CBS News broadcast the event during its noon news broadcast. Reporter Catherine Brown, in front of Cheetahs, broadcast the following. SRSs tell CBS to news this bust is being dubbed Operation Dancing Brides, and a strip club here, Cheetahs in Midtown, they say is at the center of the operation. Cheetahs advertisers exotic women and the federal authorities say it is run by the mafia. They have been here, feds have been here all morning. They conducted an early morning raid and they've been here for hours inside collecting evidence. They are still inside right now. Meantime, earlier this morning, Agents with the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement arrested 25 men described as ringleaders of this entire operation. Many of them they say are members of the Campino and Bonanno crime families. They say the men were involved in an elaborate operation to recruit women from Russia and Eastern Europe into the U.S. to force the women to work as dancers in strip clubs across New York City, including Cheetahs. This is still a developing story and we will have much more on this tonight on CBS 2 News at 5 o'clock. At 5 p.m. Defendants broadcast a news program called The Evening Report, which contained, in Terralia, the following segment. Federal authorities carried out boxes of evidence from this Midtown strip club during an early morning raid. They say the club, Cheetahs, is one of several at the center of an underground immigration ring that stretches from Times Square to the heart of Russia. 
Investigators say Russian and Italian mobsters were working together in the elaborate scheme to bring Russian and Eastern European women to the U.S., then funnel them to strip clubs to work as exotic dancers. The report then showed Catherine Brown interviewing a federal law enforcement official, the director of the National Organization for Women, and David Karlbach, an attorney for cheetahs. Karlbach was broadcast saying, There is absolutely no La Cosa Nostra, as you say, connection. At 9.25 p.m., the local CBS in New York website posted a summary of the story, embedding a PDF copy of the indictment. The website included the statements that Cheetahs had been raided, and that Cheetahs was one of several strip clubs at the center of an underground immigration ring controlled by indicted defendants who protected their turf through intimidation and threats of physical and economic harm. The story ended, as federal teams cast a wide net around strip clubs and their owners, attorney David Carl Buck, insisted his client's hands are clean. There is absolutely no La Cosa Nostra, as you say, connection, Carl Buck said. By summons and verified complaint filed April 27, 2012, plaintiffs alleged the defendants in broadcasting and publishing stories concerning Operation Dancing. F did the arrow flit the target? Oven concerning the plaintiff 843. Brides, defamed them. Plaintiffs claimed that the stories were misleading, false, and malicious, and that plaintiffs had no connection with the mafia, Operation Dancing brides, human trafficking, extortion, or any other human rights abuse. The complaint contains four causes of action defamation per quad, defamation per se, injurious falsehood, and respondeat superior. Plaintiffs assert that the false allegations of cheetahs' involvement subjected plaintiffs to scorn and ridicule and adversely affected their ability to earn income from their activities on behalf of the club. Defendants moved for dismissal of the complaint. Defendants argued, in Terralia, that all claims made by the Times Square plaintiffs and by the individual plaintiffs, collectively plaintiffs, must be dismissed because the challenge news reports were not even concerning plaintiffs, as a matter of law. Plaintiffs opposed defendants' motion, arguing that the alleged libel designated plaintiffs in such a way so as to let those who knew them understand that they were the persons meant and that plaintiffs were entitled to so prove that fact to a jury. Specifically, plaintiffs pointed to the report's assertions that Cheetahs was run by the mafia and at the center of a human trafficking ring. By making such statements, plaintiffs argued, defendants were asserting that O'Neill, Stein, and Callahan were members of organized crime. The motion court granted defendants' motion found that all of the challenge statements related solely to cheetahs, and dismissed the claims of the Times Square plaintiffs and the individual plaintiffs. The court further found that nothing in any of the broadcasts mentioned, or even indirectly referred to, the Times Square corporations, nor did any statement assert or even imply that the individually named plaintiffs were part of the mafia or global trafficking scheme. That the broadcast might have a negative impact on the business of the Times Square corporations, or that they might have caused plaintiffs' friends to shun them did not demonstrate that the statements were even concerning plaintiffs. The court also noted that First Amendment concerns required plaintiffs to be clearly identifiable, which they were not. On appeal, plaintiffs cling to their contention that they are clearly identifiable as the persons and entities that run sheetas on account of the functions they perform for the club. At the outset, plaintiffs do not explain why entities that merely supply services to an establishment should be perceived by the public to exercise such control over its operation as to be identified with illegal activities on the premises. To the contrary, plaintiffs' relationship to cheetahs is peripheral and the public at large would have no reason to think that they were implicated in the federal investigation. As to patrons, there is no explanation of why they would be aware of the businesses that supply food and beverages to the club, Times Square Restaurant No. 1, or book dancers to perform their Times Square Restaurant Group. While the individual plaintiffs involved in the operation of those businesses may be present at the club on a daily basis, and are highly visible to customers, as the affidavit of Dominique O'Neill states, they are nevertheless mere employees. Significantly, they are not employees of Cheetahs itself, 
but rather, present at the club to perform the services provided to it by their own employers. They can hardly be understood to be those who run the cheetah. 844-14. Defamation. Club, which implies persons in a position of ownership or control. Not vendors that supply management services or their employees, whose presence is required in order to render those services. As noted, Cheetahs is not a party to this appeal. The club's owner, non-party Sam Tsurka, is currently being held without bail, awaiting trial on an indictment charging him with fraud, income tax fraud and witness tampering. Tsurka has filed numerous civil rights actions against government officials who he claims describe him as a mobster. The lawsuits assert that allegations of his organized crime connections are false and are either motivated by prejudice against his Albanian ethnicity or retaliation for his ownership of strip clubs. Each case has either been dismissed prior to adjudication or voluntarily withdrawn by Tsurka. Tsurka, as the owner of Cheetahs, is in a position of ownership and control, not plaintiffs. The Times Square plaintiffs are not identified in the news reports as being operated by organized crime and their capacity as vendors to cheat is hardly serves to equate them with those identified by the report as the J-Fi. As the dissent acknowledges, whether a particular publication is capable of the meaning ascribed to it is a question for the court. Similarly, whether a plaintiff in a defamation action has demonstrated that a particular statement names or so identifies him so that the statement can be said to be of and concerning that plaintiff may be decided as a matter of law and need not be determined by a jury. Where, as here. The statement does not name the plaintiffs at all and contains nothing that would cause a reader to think defendant was referring to them. The statement is not even concerning the plaintiffs. As this court has noted, a statement made about an organization is not understood to refer to any of its individual members unless that person is distinguished from other members of the group. Likewise, where an allegedly defamatory statement is directed at a company, it does not implicate the company's suppliers, partners, vendors or affiliated enterprises even if they sustain injury as a result. The dissent accepts, as a matter of law and fact that the individual plaintiffs, though not the Times Square plaintiffs, run cheetahs, as the complaint alleges. While this contention is superficially plausible, it does not withstand closer inspection. The argument is specious, founded upon an attempt to conflate the meaning of the terms manage and run. The fundamental flaw in the complaint is the failure to distinguish the concept of control over an organization from the mere provision of management services to the entity by a vendor or, more specifically, the employees of a vendor. The general understanding of a business run by the Miari is the subjugation of the entity by organized crime, typically by force and intimidation, in furtherance of illegal activities. Ultimately, the theory of recovery espoused in the complaint amounts to an exercise in semantics. While run may colloquially refer to management of the routine, day-to-day -day operation of a business, its meaning acquires a significantly more sinister connotation when used in the same sentence as, J5. The public certainly appreciates this distinction, even if the dissent does not appear to grasp its import. Significantly, the dissent does not contend that the individual plaintiffs were in a position to exercise such authority over Cheetah's operation that they can be said to have been in control of its affairs, conceding that their employers, the Times Square plaintiffs, do not. After the arrow flit the target? Of and concerning the plaintiff 845. Occupy such a position of dominance. Were the individual plaintiffs to attempt to meddle in the affairs of an entity truly run by organized crime, they would need to adopt yet a third, considerably more dynamic definition of the term. A plaintiff bears the burden of pleading and proving that the asserted defamatory statement designates the plaintiff in such a way as to let those who knew him understand that he was the person meant. While a plaintiff may use extrinsic facts to prove that the statement is of and concerning him, he must show the reasonableness of concluding that the extrinsic facts were known to those to whom the statement was made. Plaintiffs seek to state their case by innuendo. As this court stated, the question which an innuendo raises, is, one, of logic. It is, simply, whether the explanation given is a legitimate conclusion from the premise stated. The innuendo, 
therefore, may not enlarge upon the meaning of words so as to convey a meaning that is not expressed. The suggestion that the individual plaintiffs are necessarily identified as members of organized crime because they are employees of entities that provide management services to cheetahs, reported to be run by the mafia, is simply not logical. It is based on innuendo and constitutes an attempt to enlarge the concept of managerial services to include domination and control of an organization by force, whether actual or threatened. Accordingly, the Order of Supreme Court, New York County, Ellen M. Coyne, J., entered on or about April 18, 2013, which to the extent appealed from is limited by the briefs, granted defendants' motion for dismissal of the defamation claims asserted by plaintiffs Times Square Restaurant No. 1, Incorporated, Times Square Restaurant Group, Dominique O'Neill, Sean Callahan, and Philip Stein, should be affirmed, without costs. Kapnick, J. Dissenting in part. I respectfully dissent in part from the majority's opinion and find that the motion court's decision should be modified to the extent of denying the motion to dismiss as to Dominique O'Neill. Sean Callahan and Philip Stein's claims arising out of the alleged defamatory statement it is run by the Mafia, but otherwise agree that the remainder of the alleged defamatory statements are not actionable and that the Times Square plaintiffs were properly dismissed. It is axiomatic that to prevail in defamation litigation, a plaintiff must establish that it was he or she who is libeled or slandered, that the allegedly defamatory communication was about, of and concerning, him or her. It is also well settled that I, T is unnecessary for an article, or statement to name a person in order for it to be of and concerning that person. If it can be shown either that the implication of the article was that the plaintiff was the person meant or that he or she was understood to be the person spoken about in light of the existence of extrinsic facts not stated in the article, then it is of and concerning the plaintiff as though the plaintiff was specifically named. 846.14. Defamation. Further, it is not necessary that all the world should understand the libel, it is sufficient if those who knew the plaintiff can make out that he's the person meant. One. While there can be no dispute that a defamation plaintiff ultimately has the heavy burden of proving the of concerning prong, the question raised by this appeal is what burden does the plaintiff, who is not named directly and must rely on extrinsic evidence, have at the pleading stage to overcome a motion to dismiss based on the assertion that the statements were not of concerning plaintiff? When a defamation concerns a group of people, and one or more members of that group bring a libel or slander action, thorny questions are presented as to whether the communication is of concerning the plaintiff or plaintiffs. Under some circumstances, Courts have permitted an unnamed member of a group to maintain a claim for defamation where a defamatory statement has been made against the group. Courts look to a number of factors to determine sufficiency of group defamation allegations. First, the size of a group is critical to the sufficiency of a claim by an unnamed member of a group, Albert v. Town of Walkill, 421 F.3D 137, 139, to D.Sir.2005, comparing Neiman Marcus v. Lay, 13 F.R.D. 311. 313, 316, S.D.10.Y.1952, claimed by members of a group of 25 sufficient, with Abramson v. Pataki, 278 F.3D93, 102, to D.Sir.1002, claimed by members of a group of more than 1,000 insufficient E. In Brady v. Ottaway Newspapers, 84A.D.D.226, 445 N.Y.S.D.786, to D Department. 1981, the Appellate Division, 2nd Department, rejected a definitive size limitation and allowed libel claims to proceed for a group of at least 53 police officers out of a department of more than 70.2. Brady adopted the intensity of suspicion test. With the intensity of suspicion test, size is a consideration and the probability of recovery diminishes with increasing size. Size, however, is not the only factor evaluated. It is balanced against the definiteness in number and composition of the group and its degree of organization. 
This list of balancing factors or reference elements is not meant to be exclusive. The court went on to note that the prominence of the group and the prominence of the individual within the group are other proper reference elements. In addition to these factors, courts also consider whether the defamatory statement refers to all or only some members of the group. In Brady, for example, the statement at issue referred to all members of a relatively small, identifiable group, the 53 unindicted police officers of the city of Newburgh in 1972, as opposed to a statement that only refers to some members of a group, making it less likely for an individual plaintiff to be linked to the statement. 2. The First Amendment dictates courts' long-standing disfavor of group defamation claims. In Brady, the court explained that the larger the collectivity named in the libel, the less likely it is that the reader would understand it to refer to a particular individual. As a result, the court reasoned that individual harm cannot occur as the result of a group libelous statement, because the hearer of the statement will make the rational assessment that such a statement is, by its nature, less likely to be true with respect to every member of a large group than it is to be true with respect to a particular individual. This reasoning serves to encourage frank discussions of matters of public concern under the First Amendment guarantees. F. Did the arrow flit the target? Of and concerning the plaintiff 847. Here, there are sufficient facts pleaded at this early stage in the litigation to reasonably connect the individual plaintiffs with the following statement. It, meaning cheetahs, is run by the mafia. O'Neill provided an affidavit in which she alleged extrinsic facts that she, Callahan, and Stein were part of a small and exclusive group of individuals who ran and managed cheetahs, with constant visible contact with customers, officials, dancers, and vendors. Taking these allegations as true, as we must on a motion to dismiss, the individual plaintiffs are members of a small, identifiable group that allegedly ran cheetahs and are thus implicated in the allegedly defamatory statement. We note that the result might be different had the statement only implicated some of those running cheetahs. While we do not know the exact size, organization, composition or prominence of the alleged defamation group at this stage in the litigation, there are enough facts alleged at this time to demonstrate the requisite connection. Whether or not the individual plaintiffs can come forward with evidence to support these allegations and ultimately prove that they were each individually understood to be referred to in light of extrinsic facts not stated in the broadcast, is not to be decided on a pre-answer motion to dismiss. Moreover, in reaching its result, the majority usurps the role of the trier of fact by outright deciding the meaning or the general understanding of the phrase run by the mafia. The majority goes on to assert its understanding of the colloquial meaning of the phrase to run a business and states that the public can appreciate the sinister connotation of a reference to the mafia. Not only are these clearly questions for a jury, it is unclear why these questions are relevant to the inquiry of whether the statement is of and concerning the individual plaintiffs, the majority's parsing of whether on means to have control over an organization or whether it means to merely provide management services is misplaced. The majority argues that run must mean having ownership or control of the business and that because the individual plaintiffs do not allege that they have such ownership or control over cheaters their claim must fail. This argument, which is not set forth by defendants, is unsound. On a motion to dismiss, we must accept the complaint as true, and here it sufficiently alleges that the individual plaintiffs run the operations at cheetahs. No further inquiry into what that means can properly be made on a pre-answer motion to dismiss. I agree with the majority that the remaining statements are not actionable by the individual plaintiffs as they only refer to cheetahs, which is to generally reference to implicate even the individual plaintiffs. With respect to the Times Square plaintiffs, they have not met their burden of showing that any of the allegedly defamatory statements are of and concerning them, as there are no allegations to support a reasonable connection linking these corporate entities to the statements. Food for thought. The preceding case is an appeal for a motion to dismiss, which means the allegations in the plaintiff's claim must be assumed true for the purposes of the motion. 848.14. Defamation. The plaintiffs alleged that they were part of a small, identifiable group that ran the dub. 
Isn't that enough to satisfy the event concerning requirement? At the motion to dismiss stage, it must be taken as true that customers, officials, dancers, and vendors would have known the identity of the small group of people who managed the club and thus were implicated in criminal activity. This should be an easy case on the event concerning element, unlike some of the cases cited in the dissenting opinion. In Neiman Marcus v. Lay, 13 FRD 311, SDNY 1952, for example, a book alleged that some employees of a department store were gay, which at the time would have been a statement capable of defamatory meaning. The issue in the case was whether the statement was even concerning any individual or subset of all male Neiman Marcus employees. The court held that the statement most. Our fairies was sufficiently specific to satisfy the event concerning element. The dissent is surely right that the majority is conflating that element with a defamatory meaning element in its discussion of whether run by the mafia would be understood by the average viewer of the CBS news broadcast as having sinister connotations. Would it be appropriate to decide, at the motion to dismiss stage, whether the statements in the broadcast are capable of a defamatory meaning? If a case survives a motion to dismiss, the jury may still decide that the statement was not sufficiently specific to identify the plaintiff. For example, in Robinson v. Radio 1, Incorporated, 695 F. Sup. to D425. And D. Tex. 2010, the plaintiff claimed that a morning radio show host who referred to Henry the gay security guard at Love Field in Dallas had intended to refer to him. The district court denied the radio station's motion to dismiss, but noted that the plaintiff must still establish that listeners of the show who knew the plaintiff believed that the statement referred to him. Did. At 430. As the footnote in the court's opinion rightly points out, whether a defamation can be understood to refer to the plaintiff can sometimes raise serious constitutional questions. In New York Times v. Sullivan, Infra, the court opined that criticism of government can be easily transformed into criticism of those who make governmental policy. Citing First Amendment concerns, the court held that the references to plaintiffs were too veiled to withstand constitutional scrutiny. See Joseph H. King, Jr. Reference to the plaintiff requirement in defamatory statements directed at groups. 35 Wake Forest Hell. Reverend 343, 394, 2000, discusses the uncertainty that has plagued the requirement and proposes adoption of a bright-line rule which would protect those individuals most adversely impacted by defamatory statements aimed at small groups while providing potential defendants sufficient breathing space for freedom of expression. See also David A. Elder, Small Town Police Forces, Other Governmental Entities and a Misapplication of the First Amendment to the Small Group Defamation Theory, A Plea for Fundamental Fairness from Mayberry. 6U. Pa. J. Kunst. L. 881-2004. Michael J. Pallel, Racial and Ethnic Group Defamation, A Speech-Friendly Proposal, 23 BC Third World LJ 213-2003. Ah, shucks. IT was just a story. The issue of whether the defamation can be understood to refer to the plaintiff arises with considerable frequency in works of fiction where the identity of the F to the arrow flit the target? Of and concerning the plaintiff 849. Plaintiff is thinly, or not so thinly, disguised. In an oft-cited case, Bindream v. Mitchell, 155 California RPTR, 29, California CT. App. 1979, Plaintiff, a licensed psychologist, utilized a nude marathon in group therapy as a means of helping people to shed their psychological inhibitions with the removal of their clothes. Defendant registered into the nude therapy program after promising not to write about it. He then proceeded to write and publish a novel that depicted the plaintiff using vulgar language and obscenities. Defendant argued that he had altered the description of the plaintiff so the treaters would not recognize the identity and in any event the fact that it was a novel should insulate him from liability. The court held that, if a reasonable person, reading the book, would understand that the fictional character therein pictured was, in actual fact, 
the plaintiff liability would attach. The court found no reason to disturb the jury verdict for the plaintiff. Similarly, in Pricing v. News America Publications, 672 and.e.d. 1207, 111, 1996, Lucy Logsdon, a native of Southern Illinois, wrote a fictional article entitled Bryson for 17 magazine. In the article Bryson was referred to as a slut by the author. The defendant sought to escape liability on the grounds that the article was fictional. The court held that the fact that the plaintiff was identified by name was sufficient for third parties to reasonably interpret the reference to the actual plaintiff, who lived in the same locale as the defendant. The court Geisler v. Petro Chowley, 616 liters. to D636, to D sir. 1980. Some courts, however, follow the innocent construction rule. Under this rule, if a defamatory statement can be reasonably construed to refer to someone other than plaintiff, the statement cannot be defamatory per se. See, for example, Madison v. Razor, 478 p. Sup. To D1056, CD111. 2007, found that the innocent construction rule applied to the fantasy section of defendant's book, in which the characters could be interpreted as someone other than the plaintiff. In Musikowski v. Paramount Pictures Corporation, 477 liters.3d 899. Seventh Sir. 2007, plaintiff a securities broker, had been active in organizing Little League baseball teams. An assistant coach of one of the teams wrote an non-fiction account of his coaching experience. The book was entitled Hardball, a season in the projects and made several references to Musikowski by name. Paramount Pictures released a film, a work of fiction, portraying a character who could be understood to be Musikowski. The fictional character was portrayed as a gambling addict and as a violent, self-centered person who engaged in illegal activities. Although the fictional character had some similarities to Musikowski, there were many differences. Musikowski was not mentioned by name, the fictional character's name was O'Neill. Since the character in the film could reasonably be construed to be another person or no actual person, the court concluded that the innocent construction rule prevented the court from finding the film to be defamatory per se. Lore and exhaustive treatment of the subject, see Defamation in Fiction, 51 Group, L. Reverend 223, 1985. Symposium issue contains a treasure trove of articles. For the particular challenges involved in docudramas, see Jackie Goldgrunfeld, docudramas, the legality of producing fact-based dramas, what every producer's attorney should know, 14 Hastings Com. And, LJ 483, 1992.